Chapter 9, verse 1. There was a Benjamite man named Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zoror, the son of Barakoth, the son of Apha, the Benjamite. He was a prominent person. He had a son named Saul and a handsome young man, and there was no one among the Israelites more handsome than he was. He stood a head shoulders above all the people. You want a king like all the other nations? We're going to pick them just like we pick our celebrities. A head taller than everybody else and incredibly good looking. Now on the surface you think, wow, this is exactly what Hollywood picked for a movie, right? A head taller than everybody else and incredibly good looking. Well, remember, every single time somebody's looks have been mentioned in the Bible, something bad happens. David is said to be good looking, it's going to lead to things. Bathsheba is going to be told that she's good looking, leads to things. Rachel leads to things. Sarah, it leads to bad things. Joseph is not his fault, but it still brought a lot of bad things in his life. Every time the Bible tells you what people look like, you immediately know something really bad is going to happen. And God is not saying that being beautiful is a bad thing, but beautiful does bring temptations that are different than other people. But the other thing is this. He's a head taller. They want a king that will defeat their enemies. Now the enemy that they're really fearing more than anybody are the Philistines. The Philistines are the enemy that Israel has never ever been able to defeat. And something you need to understand, in the Israelite territory, the Canaanites, the Israelites, the Akkadians, the Mesopotamians, Babylonians, Assyrians, our Armenians, all these people, the average height of the male is five foot three. That's the average height of a male is five foot three in the ancient world. We've dug up skeleton after skeleton, burial, burial, and it's all five foot three. These people are not very tall. Around the 1200s, right in the middle of the judges, the sea people came. They're called the sea people because they sailed across the sea. They sailed across the sea and they came from Greece. They were Greeks. Most of the people in this region are dark complected, five foot three, dark haired, dark skin, Arabic like people. That what we would think of Arabic. The people who came from Greece were all like much taller, six foot tall, blonde hair, brown hair, blue eyes, brown eyes, all kinds of things. And they came across and they came across with their technological advancements. And when they came in, they controlled the Iron Age, fashioning chariots and weapons and swords, and they became the technologically advanced people. They were like the America. They had all the biggest, baddest technological gizmos and advancements in military technology. And I mentioned this back in Judges, but Israel in the hill country is what we typically think of like West Virginia territory. And the people, the Philistines, are what we typically think of like New York and Los Angeles. That was the equivalent. Israel didn't control the technology. They didn't control the iron. They weren't crafting the latest technological weapons and that kind of stuff. The Philistines did. And they're a head taller than everybody else with more technological advancements than everybody else in chariots. And every single time Israel comes against them, for some reason, they have no problem conquering other people. But when they come to the Philistines, they just like shut down in fear. Which is what we kind of do. Like, oh, those churches have more technology than us. They must be getting more people to their churches. Or that school has more technology or whatever. That family does. Like, how am I going to compete with that with raising my kids? And we're not trusting God to take care of our family if we do the right thing. We're fearing the fact that other families or other schools or other countries have more money, more technology. And we're going to lose our kids or our influence or our congregation to them. And they did the same thing. They shut down. And this is why it's so important, because now Saul is the abnormal Israelite. (laughs) 
He's a head taller than everybody else, which means he's actually going to look like he can actually stand up against the Philistines. The narrator is telling you this because your as a reader who is from this time period is immediately thinking, this guy can actually look the Philistines in the eye. And he's handsome. He has all the criteria of a good king. But there's also a negative note to him. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Do you remember Benjamin in the book of Judges? Benjamin was the city, Gibeah, was a city that raped the Levite's wife. And the Israelites were acting just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then all of Israel came to punish Gibeah, and they end up slaughtering all the Benjamites except for 600 men. How did those 600 men get wise? They went to Jabesh Gilead, and they killed everybody, man, woman, and child, except for virgin women, and they killed them all. And they took 400 virgin women after they slaughtered their entire family, kidnapped them, and forced them into marriages with the 400 Benjamites. But there were still 200 Benjamites left. So they went down to Shiloh, and they kidnapped all the women who were at a bachelorette party-like thing, and they captured 200 women and kidnapped them and forced them into marriages with the Benjamites. Saul is the descendant of a man who kidnapped his wife. His grandfather ran out into the woods, grabbed a wife, forced her, dragged her home, forced her into a marriage, and basically what we would call date rape, and that's where Saul comes from. Benjamin is not a good name in the Bible anymore. Pre-judges, it was a good, respected tribe. Post-judges, it's a horrible tribe. On the surface, it's like, oh, this is the guy. But deep down in the crevices of his background, there's something else going on. Kind of like the JFK family. Very attractive, very powerful. Everybody looked at him. JFK was losing the, the, the debates, debate after debate after day. He was losing to Nixon because they were televising on the radio. And then the first time ever, like halfway through the debate, they put the debate on the television for the first time ever, and JFK's ratings went through the ceiling. Why? Because he was more attractive than Nixon. And they started choosing their leaders based on looks. But little did people know, the Kennedy family is jacked up evil. Prostitution, assassinations, corruptions, all that kind of stuff. But who cares? He's good-looking. And that's how America picked their leaders once television started televising things. Bill Clinton, he can play the saxophone and he hangs out with celebrities. But deep down inside, the family background is not good. The family is dark. And that's what the narrator wants you to see. The family is not good, but they look really good. And this is who God's going to pick, just like our celebrities, because this is exactly who he wants. That's important. Saul's name literally means to ask. We talked about the, the, ver, the verb that, to ask, which is sha'al. Sha'al, S-H-A-A-L, is to ask. And Saul's name is Saul. And so they, it literally is the Hebrew word to ask. So the people asked for a king like all their other nations, and God gave them what they asked for literally by giving them, he asked. They're getting exactly what they wanted. The donkeys of Saul's father's Kish wandered off. So Kish said to his son, Saul, take the donkeys. So Saul crossed through the hill country of Ephraim, passing through the land of Shalishah, 
But they did not find them. So they crossed through the land of Shalisham, and they, they were not there. Then they crossed through the land of Benjamin, and still they did not find them. Huge rabbit trail, right? Now, it's not uncommon for donkeys to run away. Now, one thing, remember we talked about this in Judges. This is not donkeys in the European donkey kind of a sense. When we see the word donkey, we don't mean like European barn donkey or the movie Shrek donkey. (laughs) The donkeys of Israel were more like a cross between a donkey and a horse. The donkeys were very fast and swift and bigger like a horse, not quite as big as a horse, but they were very sturdy and sure-footed like a donkey. So you didn't necessarily exactly ride them or race them like a horse. They couldn't stand up like that. They were more of a pack animal like a donkey, but at the same time, they did have this regalness to them. Donkeys don't really have a regal look to them like horses do. That, That beauty and that swiftness. And so they had that. And so when people rode donkeys, riding a donkey was a symbol of kingship in the ancient world. So the story immediately, so these donkeys are they're good for running away because they're not like a donkey. They, move, they can move faster. And it was not uncommon for them to run away because they had that stubbornness and wildness of a donkey and a wild horse, but they had more swiftness. If it's a symbol of kingship, what is his donkeys doing? The story begins with his donkeys running away from him. The story begins with kingship running away from him. This is a foreshadowing of the fact that he's going to end up losing his kingship. But the other thing too is, it doesn't usually take this long to find donkeys. And which means if it's taking this long, then who's behind it? Yahweh. Because if you keep reading the story, the donkeys are going to lead him right into the home of Samuel. So his donkeys are running away and he's chasing them down because God is directing the donkeys. God is directing his kingship. And he's going to direct the kingship into Saul's anointment. And he's also going to direct the kingship to leave Saul eventually one day. This is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. So verse 5, when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant, that's the word Nagah or Na'ar. So Na'ar, we talked about Samuel was called a Na'ar, servant or a young boy or a lad. His servant was with him. And come on, let's head back before my father quits worrying about the donkeys and becomes anxious about us. So what does Saul want to do? He wants to give up. This is like giving up on your brand new like Dodge Ram truck. You don't spend that much money and just say, well, I guess I just can't find it. Let's go on somewhere else. It's like, no, you're going to hunt that thing down. You're going to call the cops. He's like, I'm done. Let's just go home. Granted, they have been looking for a long time. But the servant said to him, look, there is a man of God in this town. He is highly respected. Everything he says really happens. Now let's go there. Perhaps he will tell us where we should go to look for it. Who's the wise one? The servant. Just like Eli's sons were priests, but they were ignorant and blind. And Naar, the lad, the boy Samuel, was the one God was speaking through. Now we have this great, tall, handsome king who's ready to give up and he's not wise. He doesn't even think about consulting the prophet. Yet the servant is like, hey, let's go to the prophet. This is foreshadowing of Saul will probably never, ever seek out God. Yet the servant is wise enough to do it. So he says, let's go ask Samuel where it is. Now, they use, they're going to use the word seer. Seer is just another word for a prophet. Someone who sees things that other people don't because he's on the divine counsel of Yahweh. So Saul says, servant, all right, we can go. 
Saul's listening and obeying his servant. But what can we bring the man since the food in our bags is used up? Now, Saul at least realizes that you don't go to a prophet without a gift. Now, you don't go to anybody without a gift. In the ancient world, when you go to somebody's house or anything, you always bring a gift. Because hospitality both ways is just really crucial. We have no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant went on to answer Saul, Look, I just happen to have in my hand a quarter of a shekel. It's the servant who has money. It's the servant who has the gift. Not Saul. I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us where we should go. He is so confident of Samuel's ability. Now, it used to be in Israel that whenever someone went to inquire of God, he would say, come on, let's go to the seer. For today's prophet used to be called a seer. Saul said to the servant, that's a good idea. Come on, let's go. So they went to the town where the man of God was. As they were going up to the ascent of the town, they met some girls coming out to draw water. And they said to them, this is where the seer is. They replied, yes, straight, is this where the seer is? Yes, straight ahead. But hurry now, for he came to the town today, and the people are making sacrifice at the high place. And when you enter the town, you can find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people won't eat until he arrives, for he must bless the sacrifice. Once that happens, those who have not been, who have been invited will eat. Now go on up, for this is the time when you can find him. Now this is important. He means girls. And the girls tell him, yeah, the prophet's here, but he's up sacrificing for the village. But everybody knows that you do not sacrifice without the prophet. And everybody knows that you do not eat the sacrifice without the prophet first blessing it. And everybody in the village is waiting for the prophet to do it because that's the right godly thing. So once he sacrifices and once he blesses it, then the people will partake. Now, why is it so important? Because later, Saul is not going to wait on the prophet to sacrifice. He's not going to wait on the prophet to eat. And it's going to cause a huge consequence in his kingship. And the point is the narrator's foreshadowing, even these girls understand that. And it's not a knock against girls. It's that they're young, uneducated, non-leadership girls. And they get what the king most certainly should understand. Everything is showing you that everybody is wiser and more intelligent than Saul. That's how he's being introduced to you. Really good looking on the surface, really dark family, and everybody seems to be more intelligent than him and more aware. Doesn't going up to the high place to some kind of a negative kind of... Yes. Once again, yes, you're not allowed to sacrifice anywhere except for the tabernacle, except there seems to be exception if the prophet does it. Because the prophet is on the divine counsel of Yahweh. And if the prophet sacrifices where he's not allowed, then you know he's going to die the next day. So that will kind of give you a clue that he probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> if he lives, then God is approved of it. But here's the other thing. When we get into the end of Samuel, there are going to be lots of people sacrificing in high places, and God doesn't seem to be condemning it. And it seems that the tabernacle has gone to disarray. And it might be another one of those things that God will allow them to have it because of their unrelenting disobedience. But once they build a temple, then God's going to put the kibosh on that again. But most scholars, it is a very, very difficult, gray thing to figure out why is it that God is so strictly condemned, sacrificing anywhere outside the tabernacle, 
and he condemns it all throughout the Torah. And it's never mentioned in Judges. Nobody really does in Judges, um, except for Gideon. But he seems to approve that. Yet he doesn't condemn it when it's happening in Samuel. But then when we get to Kings, he's going to start condemning it big time again. So why is Samuel in the first eight chapters of Kings okay for God? And most scholars say, well, probably because there's no temple yet. But at the same time, there's a tabernacle. But if they let it go to disarray, because we're also seeing the Ark of the Covenant is going to different cities and the tabernacle is never mentioned. So they literally just allow the tabernacle to fall apart. And that's why God's allowing high places. We don't know. It's a huge question mark. For whatever reason, the narrators don't really care about these things at this point. And we don't know why. We don't know why. So they went up to the town, verse 14, and as they were heading for the, heading for the middle of the town, Samuel was coming in their direction to go to the high place. Now the day before Saul arrived, Yahweh had told Samuel, At this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. You must consecrate him or anoint him as the leader over my people Israel. He will save my people from the land of the, the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked with favor on my people. Their cry has reached me. So the day before this, Samuel was brought into the divine counsel of Yahweh, and God says, this exact time tomorrow, I'm going to send you a guy from Benjamin. He's the guy that you were anointed as king. And he will save Israel from the Philistines. Now that gives you such hope. Verse 19, Samuel replied to Saul. So, verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul, Yahweh said, here is the man that I told you about. He will rule over my people. As Saul approached Samuel in the middle of the gate, he said, please, Tell me where the seer's house is. He doesn't even know who the prophet is. Samuel has gained such a reputation. He's traveling everywhere. Ramah is only about five miles away from Bethlehem. And for the last 20-something years, Samuel's been traveling over the entire land, serving as a judge. And everything he says always comes true. The servant knows where the prophet lives. Yet when Saul gets there, he doesn't recognize him. He doesn't, he doesn't, and here's the other thing too. Yes, you would say, okay, he doesn't recognize them because it's not like they have pictures and, and Twitter and like CNN in that time period. But everybody recognizes Samuel by his robe. And we're going to find other people will recognize him by his robe. And it won't be until after Samuel dies that Saul will begin to recognize him by his robe. And so he doesn't seem to understand that this robe signifies the prophetic ministry. He is ignorant. Samuel replied to Saul, I am the seer. Go up in front of me to the high place. Today you will eat with me in the morning, and I will send you away. I will tell you everything that you are thinking or what's on your heart. Don't be concerned about the donkeys that you have lost three days ago, for they have been found. Whom does all of Israel desire? Is it not you and your father's family? So you're just walking around, you're looking for your donkeys, you knock on this old guy's house, and you say, hey, have you seen my donkeys? It's like, you're going to be king. All of Israel's desires for you. Go up to the hill, and we will sacrifice together up there, and then I will tell you everything that is on your heart. Creepy. <laughs> Can you imagine just some guy coming up to you and saying every fear, every dream, every desire, every thought that you've ever had, he just begins to lay it out. Now, probably not in a reading your mind kind of a sense, but understanding the depths of who you really are. 
kind of a sense. And so he tells him this. He's going to send him up, and this is what he's going to do. Saul replied, Am I not a Benjamite from the smallest of Israel's tribes? Is not my family clan the smallest of all the tribes of Benjamin? Why do you speak to me in this way? So it's not uncommon for people in the ancient world to immediately say, Who, me? I mean, we would probably do that too. Unless you're really prideful. But still, you're going to read further and you're going to realize he actually really believes like me. I am really the least. And he's going to act like that too. Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant to the room and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited. There were about 30 people present. And Samuel said to the cook, Give me the portion of meat that I gave to you, the one I asked you to keep with you. He's already prepared. And what you're going to find out, these 30 people are leaders and elders. He's already brought the elders and the leaders of this region together to witness the anointing of Saul. And he's basically in front of everybody saying, this is your king. He's already, the meal was already prepared. God came to him the day before and everything's already ready. So the cook picked up the leg and brought it and set it in front of Saul. And Samuel said, what was kept is now set before you. Eat for it has been kept for you for this meeting time. He's not just talking about the meat. He's talking about the nation. From the time I said I have invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they came down from the high place to the town, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. And they got up at dawn, and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get up, so I can send you on your way. So Saul got up, and the two of them, and he said, He and Samuel went outside. And while they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go ahead of us. So he did. And Samuel then said, You remain here for a while so I can inform you of God's message. So they spent the entire night talking. There's a huge connection happening here. There's a huge bond happening. This is intentional. Before he anoints Saul, he's binding them together, bonding them together. He's developing a relationship with them. And they're going to become friends. And he is making it clear that he is the guiding. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a small container of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head. Samuel kissed him and said, Yahweh has chosen you to lead his people, Israel. You will rule over Yahweh's people. And you will deliver them from the power of the enemies who surround them. This will be your sign that Yahweh has chosen you as a leader over his inheritance. Now notice, Saul, Samuel is not using the word Melech. King is not showing up here. He says, God has chosen you to be the Nagid. You will Nagid the people. You are a vice regent. And twice he has said, you will rule on Yahweh's behalf. You will rule over Yahweh's people. He's making it very clear. You are not a king, and these are not your people. They're Yahweh's people, and you're Yahweh's vice regent. This is the first thing that he's saying to Saul. You are not going to be a king like all the other nations. When you leave me today, you will find two men near Rachel's tomb. Now, this is really important. Remember, he doesn't know Samuel as the prophet. He hasn't seen this with his own eyes. Anytime a prophet tells you something, they must always give a sign to validate who they are. So he's going to send Saul home, and Saul's going to experience a few things to validate Samuel. He's going to encounter two groups of people who are going to tell him things that will say, and Samuel knows in advance. And then things are going to happen. This is very important. 
So he says this, When you leave me today, you will find two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on Benjamin's border. They will say to you, the donkeys that you've gone looking for have been found. Your father is no longer concerned about the donkeys, but has become anxious about you too. He is asked about you too. He is asking, what should I do about my son? So you're going to go to this exact place and you're going to meet these exact people and they're going to say this exact thing. As you continue on from there, you will come to a tall tree at Tabor. At that point, three men who are going to God at Bethel will meet you. One of them will be carrying three young goats on the way to the goat ripping contest. And one of them will be carrying three rounds of loaves of bread. And one of them will be carrying a container of wine. Very specific. They will ask you how you are doing and, you will, and they will give you two loaves of bread and you will accept them. Afterward, you will go to Gibeah of God. So you're going to encounter goats, sacrifice, wine, the blessing of God's abundance on the nation, and bread, the sign of God's covenant with his people. All these are symbols of blessings. And they're going to offer you the blessings. And this is going to happen exactly the way that I, Samuel the prophet, has said. Then you're going to come to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost or a Philistine fort or Philistine military barracks. Either way, it is a military regiment of Philistines. When you enter the town, you will meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place, and they will have harps, tambourines, flutes, and lyres, and they will be prophesying. When the Spirit of Yahweh rushes upon you, you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Now remember, the book of Judges, what is the purpose of the Spirit of Yahweh? to supernaturally empower you to do the will of Yahweh. Remember Acts 1.8? We are now being called to be his witnesses. My spirit will come upon you and he will give you the power to be my witnesses. To supernaturally empower you to do the will of Yahweh. What is Yahweh's will for Israel right now? To conquer the Philistines. What is Yahweh's will for all the judges? To conquer the Philistines. Every single time the Spirit of Yahweh came upon the judges, what were they expected to do? To conquer the Philistines, or the Canaanites, or the Amorites, whoever the enemy was at that time. So he says to them, you'll go to Gibeah, and there just happens to be a military fort there of the Philistines. The Spirit of Yahweh will come upon you, and you'll prophesy. You'll be changed into a different man. Now, this doesn't mean he's going to like transform into a completely different human. It's not that he's going to be given a new heart. It means that he's going to be equipped to be what God wants him to be. It's that God's going to do something to his heart to give him the ability to do what God wants him to do. And you will prophesy. When these signs have taken place, do whatever your hands find to do, for God will be with you. And you will go with, down to Gilgah before me. I'm going to join you there to offer burnt offerings and to make peace offerings. And you should wait for seven days until I arrive and tell you what to do. This is very important to understand all these steps because lots of people miss this. He is to go to one place where he will meet people and they will tell him very specific things. He's going to go to the tree of Tabor and meet other people and they will give him very specific things. These two things will validate that Samuel actually knows what he's talking about. Then he is to go to Gibeah. Gibeah is where he is from, close to where he's from. He is to go to Gibeah, and there the Spirit of Yahweh is going to come upon him in power, rushing upon him in power. 
He's going to be given the ability to prophesy. This doesn't mean like telling the future. It just means knowing things about God, saying things about God that other people wouldn't know if they weren't a prophet. And God's going to equip your heart to be able to do what he wants you to do. You're just going to happen to be right next to a Philistine military fort. And you're to do whatever your hands find to do while the Holy Spirit is rushing upon you. And I just told you, you are to be king to conquer the Philistines. So do the math. If your purpose is to conquer the Philistines, Saul, and I'm sending you to a Philistine fort, you're going to be empowered with the Holy Spirit like Gideon and Samson and Jephthah and Othniel. And I want you to do whatever your hands have to do, find to do, not basket weaving. Why you're empowered by the Holy Spirit and your heart's been equipped to do it, you're supposed to kill Philistines. And he would know this. He would know this. That's his test. The first test of him as king is, will you obey Yahweh? Yahweh has spoken through his prophet and Saul's been picked. Will he obey? That's the question.